0: It's good to see everyone. I'm glad to see every face I'm seeing, and I'm glad to be here. Um, For those who want to turn there, our passage this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 7, which is an excerpt from the Ten Commandments. About uh, a year year and a half ago, we were going through a series on the Ten Commandments in, in children's church, and we had a teaching commandment number three, which goes like this. You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. How do you teach that to a group of kids? I honestly don't remember how it went that day, but I do remember thinking to myself, I could probably, you know, I could use a little bit more learning from this commandment. I could understand it a little bit more. So I I began reading the Bible and looking into it and praying over it and I was amazed by what I found. I was excited and challenged. And I want you all to be equally challenged and excited by this passage. So what is God getting at exactly? Did you notice that the commandment came with a warning? The Lord would not hold guilt with those who take his name in vain. Taking God's name in vain makes you equally guilty of sin and deserving of God's wrath as any other sin you can think of. God wants us to treat this seriously and not to dismiss it. So it, we need to know what he means. Have you ever thought about what this commandment means? Have you ever considered whether or not you're breaking this commandment? Let's pray together. God, Father, we do not want to take your holy name in vain. We know you're mighty and powerful, gentle and good. Give us grace today to read and understand your word. Teach us how to keep from breaking your third commandment and help us, by your spirit, glorify your name in our hearts and in our lives. Amen. To give you an idea of the direction of today's sermon, we're going to first talk about names and specifically the importance of God's name. Secondly, we're going to cover one important implication of this command, and finally, we'll cover several ways we might take God's name in vain. It won't be a comprehensive list, but we will cover four specific ways. Let's let's begin then. What is God's name? To understand that, it's good to first talk about what a name is. Uh, For the most part, we have names not for our sake, but for the sake of others. When was the last time you used your name for your own direct benefit? You already know who you are. You give out your name so that others might know who you are. And in biblical times... Your name would have been used for more than just identifying you. Uh, Names were a way of defining you. Names pinned you down, put you inside of a box, and summarized the very essence or the circumstances around you. This is why Moses was given the name he was given by the Egyptian princess who rescued him from the river. The name Moses means to draw out of the water or to rescue from the water. Moses' name then tells others a little bit about him and where he comes from. We also see throughout the Bible that people aren't bound to a certain identity. Their names can change. Sometimes a person would change their own name, and other times God himself would change a person's name, mainly when he had a special plan for that person. This is why Abraham was renamed from Abram to Abraham, the first meaning father and the second meaning father of many. God had a special plan for Abraham, and his name was meant to show this. So we see that in biblical times, Names had an intentional significance. In light of this, we can remember that when Moses was with God at a burning bush, he asked God for his name. What was Moses actually asking when he asked God to reveal his name? I want to really drive in a point here that he was not asking for a name in a way we would understand it. He was not asking for an ID card. In fact, early in the conversation, God has said, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Introductions had already been made. So instead, I think what Moses was trying to figure out here was what in the world was he going to tell the Egyptians and the Israelites when he arrived on the scene and announced the Israelites were to be set free? On whose authority is this being commanded? Who is this God who makes such bold commands? Keep in mind that since Moses grew up in the ways of the Egyptians, he would have known many of the false gods the Egyptians worshipped, and each of these gods had their own domains. Uh, So we had like the God of rivers, the God of agriculture, the God of warfare, and so on. So Moses was asking God for his name because he was looking for a way to define God and get a better understanding of who God is. He was asking, who are you and how can I pin you down? Where do you come from and what is your essence? What is your domain and your level of authority and influence in this world? How does God respond? As we said earlier, names are for the benefit of others, and this is especially true of God's name. God tells Moses, I am that I am, so you may call me I am. This took away all hope that Moses had for putting God inside of a box. The name is simply I am. It means that God is eternal, having had no beginning point or moment of birth, which sets God apart from everything we've ever known. God is literally out of this world. It also means that he is self-sufficient, dependent on nobody and no thing for his existence. And in fact, the Bible teaches repetitively that we, everyone and everything, find their source of existence in him. So we find that God is far more powerful than we can imagine, and he must have ultimate authority over everything. The name also shows God to be unchanging. While our names might not be the same throughout our lifetime, and our passions and our personalities might shift from season to season. God never changes, no matter what happens. So we see then that God's name might leave us with more questions than answers. And in some way, I think that's exactly the point. Because in God's name, we see a vastness and a mystery that cannot be unraveled. God is just too big, too grand, and too different to be defined so easily. Taking God's name in vain has to do with failing to understand and live by this. The word vain in this passage means empty, useless, or for no good purpose. So it is when we make light of who God is that we're in danger of breaking the third commandment. We can perhaps reword this commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain can be rephrased in the following way. You shall not make light of who God is in his full power, majesty, majesty, Holiness and beauty. You could even phrase it rather than as a do not statement, as a do this statement, in this way. Acknowledge God's greatness and holiness in everything you do. When was the last time you considered the infinite and untraceable quality of God's nature and glory? When you prayed, did you make time to sit quietly and reverently before God, your Creator, and just enjoy being in His presence? When was the last time you were amazed by simply who God is? God wants to be known this way. So when you spend devoted time to God, or even just throughout your day, take time to consider who God is, for no other reason than to be amazed by him. Before we go on to discuss specific ways we might take God's name in vain, it's good for us to to stop and consider an important implication of this command. In order for us to obey this command, to uphold the honor of God's name, We must know God, at least in part. We shouldn't brush by this idea. God wants to be known. And this is one of his deep desires, to to be known by men and women everywhere, and not just as great, but as the greatest, the most glorious. And if it's true that God wants his name to go out into the world, then it's going to happen. There's no doubt about that, because God's will is unbreakable. God wants to be known. Therefore, he will be known. The question, then, is how will God be experienced and known? When God makes his name known, there are only two possible reactions. We can either embrace God, submitting our lives to him, or we can reject God, setting ourselves against him. There are no alternatives. The way you come to know and experience God in your life will be dependent on which of these two paths you take. For the Israelites, who witnessed everything that God had accomplished in Egypt to rescue them from slavery... They came to know God as their savior and redeemer, their protector and their sustainer. For them, God was salvation, so they worshipped him as a result. Pharaoh was also a first-hand witness of God's power. But instead of saying, Okay, Moses, you and your people are free to go to the mountain and, and worship God. And by the way, can I come too? No. Instead, he set himself against God. So he came to know God very differently coming to know him as powerful enemy and destroyer. In either case, whether Jew or Egyptian, God's name became known, and known on a personal level, experienced. Our personal experience of God, too, will either be as our loving Savior and Lord, or as a fearful judge and destroyer. This has to do with the warning attached to Commandment 3, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In what ways have you hardened yourself against God? It might not be your whole lifestyle. Then again, it may very well be your whole life. But maybe it's just certain areas of your life. In what ways are you resisting God's will for you to know him and to call upon his name? Turn away from these things and seek God earnestly now that you might experience him as your savior and your friend. Or as the prophet Isaiah writes, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Now I think it would be good to discuss a few specific ways that we're prone to take God's name in vain. First, the Israelites would have heard this and understood that they should not take God's name in vain or use it as a curse. That is to say, using God's name as profanity uh, or in any other way in our speech that disrespects God or fails to bring him the honor that he is due. This is also probably the most common interpretation of the command that I've heard growing up. And it's a good place to start. When I was in high school, I felt uncomfortable and dirty using profanity, so I tried to find a word that I could use instead, a safe word, so to speak. At the time, one of my favorite comic strips was uh, Gary Larson's The Far Side. And he uses the word criminy all the time. So that's the word I settled on, criminy. And so I trained myself to use this word in situations where normally I would have used a curse word. Uh, It became second nature. Instinctively, if I would stub my toe, I would say, criminy, and I was self-righteous about it. I thought I was better than people who curse because I didn't. After all, criminy isn't a curse word, is it? But I think I was wrong. I I missed a point. God doesn't care what words come out of our mouths or syllables or sounds. Uh, He cares rather what's in the heart because out of the heart the mouth speaks. Even though other people didn't see the word "crime" as a curse word, the fact is I was using it as a curse word. I was no better than other people at all. You see, when we use profanity, we're essentially choosing a word to express our displeasure or anger or shock or some other negative emotion. Uh, It's a venting of negative emotions. Using profanity is is crude, lacking in self-control, lacking in self-respect and respect for others. And it can be vulgar and obscene. Now, imagine taking all those negative emotions and all of that dirty meaning and assigning it to God's spoken name. What a terrible use of God's name. How it reduces who God is. Misusing God's name is a form of blasphemy that reduces God's character and reputation. And it's a sin that God treats very seriously. He cares how he's known by the world and especially how he's known by his own people. So we should ask ourselves, how are we using the name of God and of the Son? Do we honor God in the way we speak of him? And are we mindful of what we're telling the people around us when we use God's name inappropriately? The goal here is that we give the proper respect and honor to God when we use his name and not to use his name too casually or flippantly. But isn't it so easy for us when we get used to something to treat it with less care and less thought? Or we get less excited about something that used to excite us very much the more we're around it. I think sometimes we can do this with God, where we get so used to him that we forget who he is when we think of and speak of him. One great way to try to counter this tendency is by reminding yourself of some of the names that God has been known by throughout history. For example, we can say the God of strength and power or Elohim, which is a Hebrew word for God. This is also my personal favorite, Elohim. Another example is God, the great I Am, which is Yahweh. Yahweh is God's proper name in Hebrew and means I Am. Another example is God Almighty, which is El Shaddai. Now, I'm I'm not saying you should go around talking to people about God using the name El Shaddai or something. But what I am saying is, that all of these names have unique meanings that you should already associate with the word God when you use that name. Don't let your familiarity with God lead you to forget his scope and his majesty. When you speak God's name, are you aware of the immense weight of the one behind the name? If you're constantly reminding yourself of who God is, then it will become much harder for you to use God's spoken name in vain. The historical names of God is just one way I like using uh, to remember this but you may very well come up with your own strategies. A second way the Bible shows us we're tempted to take God's name in vain is by doubting God. We as God's people so easily end up questioning the faithfulness of God. We ask questions like, can God really help me in my situation? Does God really care about me? Is God still at work, and can he fix this world or even my broken life? When we think this way, we aren't trusting in God's promises and what he told us is true. So in our hearts, we're making God out to be a liar. And we're doubting his ability to take care of us and the world that he's created. So in our hearts, we're making God out to be weak and impotent. When we believe God is untrue or powerless, then we're taking God's name in vain in our hearts by our lack of faith. Some of you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, that's me. I think that way all the time. If that is you, please realize you're not alone. I think all of us ask these kind of doubt questions at some point or another. Even the Israelites did. They were quick to doubt when Moses first returned to Egypt. They had already been enslaved for generations with the cruel slavery at the hands of the Egyptians, where they were treated like cattle and oppressed to the point they had lost all hope. So when Moses arrived on the scene, as we said earlier, uh, they you know announcing that God had sent him to rescue them from slavery. They didn't jump out in joy, did they? They doubted. Imagine then what they thought when they heard that Moses' first attempt with Pharaoh led not to their freedom, but to an increased workload. Moses showing up made things worse for them. And Moses knew that too, and he doubted. Listen again to the accusations he launches at God, which we read in the scripture reading earlier today. O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You can almost hear Moses saying, God, in no way have you done what you said you would do. You have completely and utterly failed me and my people. How does God answer these accusations? By appealing to the honor and majesty of his own name. Basically, God said, you can trust me on account of who I am. I am not a liar, and I'm not weak. I, what I say is always true, and I am more powerful than you can know. If I said I will deliver the Israelites, then I will. In what ways are you finding yourself doubting God in your life? In what ways have you decided that God's hand is unable to deliver you from the trials of your life and the sins and temptations that you face? In these situations... Remind yourself of who God is and what he has said. Once you can pinpoint the exact way that you're prone to doubt, then I challenge you, go into the Bible and find scripture passages where God speaks a a promise or a truth that will help you overcome your specific doubt. There isn't a doubt, I can guarantee you this, there isn't a doubt you can have that God does not already address in his words. A third way that we may take God's name in vain is by hypocrisy. God has chosen to place his name, his reputation on us, his people. In a world that hates the one and true God, when you claim to follow after God and then live a life that does not match that claim, the people around you will see that and think less of God. They will scoff at God because what God's people do down here below is a reflection of God's character and who he is. Those who are not saved don't typically look at the evils that the church has done throughout history and continue to do today And think to themselves, you know what, I want to follow God even more now, but I'll make sure to stay within that particular group of people. No, instead what Paul writes in Romans is true. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Or in Jeremiah, God himself speaking, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? We see here, besides the idea that hypocrisy brings down God's name, that the temple of God bears God's name. We who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us are also temples of God, and so therefore we bear God's name. This is his choosing, his will. God's character is represented in his church. When we live in hypocrisy, we take God's name in vain because we don't honor God enough to obey Him. But on top of that, our hypocrisy may lead people who have no faith in God to also take God's name in vain because they see our double lives and curse God. I think parents can understand this idea pretty easily. If your child does something crazy in public, sure, the kid looks like a fool, but at the same time, uh, people will think that's a reflection of you as a parent. Or in the workplace, we have dress codes and other policies that dictate what we do so that a company doesn't look bad. Uh, Several weeks ago, when I dyed my hair, one of my colleagues uh, immediately, she was actually a director, in fact, immediately asked me, are you actually going to meet with clients in that way? My appearance was seen as unprofessional and a poor reflection on the company. The same thing can happen within a church. We don't want the gospel message to be dismissed because our lives don't match our testimony. God's name and reputation is tied to the actions of his people. Let us be mindful of that and remember that we're ambassadors for Christ. Let us then make every effort to live lives worthy of the calling we've been called to. Quick note here. Not being a hypocrite doesn't mean being perfect. In fact, we shouldn't pretend that we're sinless. Uh, What brings us together, God's people, is the way we recognize our weakness and our sin... And, and our need of God. So the way we, we respond to our sin can be quite a strong testimony to others showing God's grace and his power. The hypocrisy we're talking about here has to do with patterns of sin and areas in your life that you're less willing to give over to God or perhaps don't care so much about. The question you should, you should ask yourself is, do you care much about your sin? Does it bother you at all? If you're actively fighting against your sin and seeking God's strength and guidance during those times but not always overcoming your sin, I wouldn't label you as a hypocrite. Instead, I would say, you're a Christian in daily need of Christ. You're a sinner in continual need for Christ. Keep going to Christ as you wrestle with your sin and remember then your constant need of him. And that leads to our final point, a fourth way we might take God's name in vain is by rejecting the one he sent for us. Jesus repetitively taught his disciples that he and a father are one. And if you've seen Jesus, then you've seen the father. When we reject Jesus who was sent by God, then by default, we're also rejecting the one who sent him. This is important. Saying no to Jesus means saying no to God Almighty. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, Jesus and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are many things in this passage that we can perhaps talk about and many things that are difficult to understand. But what I want to focus your attention now is uh, is that Jesus, who is by nature God, was given the name that is above all names. How can this be? Didn't he already have this name since he's God, um, since before creation, since eternity passed, and certainly before coming uh, to earth as a baby? Of course he did. He definitely had this name. He is God. But we see from this passage that when he became human, he emptied himself of the glory that came with that name. And then he earned back that same name by what he did as a God-man. He earned the name in a way that none of us could. He did this by living a life that was perfect before God, sinless in every thought and in every deed. In every way, Jesus honored the name of God by his obedience. Even Jesus' death is a purposeful act of obedience, and God the Father was pleased in him. Because of Jesus' obedience, especially on the cross, the Father exalted him, giving him the name that is above all names to the Father's glory. That is to say, Jesus receiving glory in turn glorifies God the Father. God is pleased in saving and redeeming sinners, us, through Christ. And this gives glory to God. The Bible is very clear about that. What does this teach us about God? I think that what we learn here is that God shows the glory of His name most powerfully in the way He loves and takes care of His people, and especially in the way He saves and redeems His people. In the Old Testament, The exodus was the amazing salvation story that the Jews kept coming back to over and over in their memory because of the way that God chose to rescue them with mighty and terrifying acts of judgment. But today, we remember and celebrate the cross because those same mighty and terrifying acts of judgment that belonged to us were instead placed on Jesus on the cross. God chose to take upon himself the death that should have been ours. This manner of salvation brings God glory and increases his namesake because it clarifies who he is. We not only worship the God of the burning bush who we must fear, we also worship the meek servant who humbly died on a cross so that we don't have to. Both are true. Both are accurate representations of God. But we need both. There is no worse way to take God's name in vain than by saying no to Jesus. Even if you fear God, and have reverence for God, and believe in his awesome and unmatched power, at the end of the day, saying no to Jesus, is rejecting God. Your reverence cannot save you apart from Christ. We should again recall the warning we've been given. You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Those who reject Jesus retain their guilt by rejecting the salvation that God has provided through him. But if that's true, then the opposite is also true. Those who accept Jesus no longer have any guilt. We who believe in Christ would not be condemned because God has chosen to place our guilt on him. This is great news because in this way, the door has been opened for us to get to know God and to draw close to him. Through Jesus alone are we able to get to know God. Seek God then. Our God who delights in saving sinners is worth seeking. No one who earnestly seeks God is ever disappointed. As you seek God and begin finding him and and learning more about him and experiencing him in your life, you will find that your love for him will grow and you will become more and more amazed by him. Do you want to obey commandment number three? Do you want to take, rather, do you want to honor the name of God in your life? Then seek God, find him, know him, that is the only way to, take, to keep from taking God's name in vain. But to do this, we've really got to fly to Jesus. We can only follow this command through Jesus because only through him do we truly see the splendor of God's name revealed. Let's pray.